0: I don't know how much money is in those trays. I was looking to see if there was a lock on the back of this cabinet right here. I'm kidding. But here's what I do know. God will use that as He uses you for His glory and remarkably to serve the ones who He calls to serve Him grateful for this church. I'm grateful for the fact that you've devoted this day to focusing on God's mission for His people. I love it that you'll be going door knocking this afternoon. God's mission begins right here. Perhaps you have as I have been on a number of occasions at churches where they'll have a sign on the inside of the door that you'll go out says something like you are now entering the mission field. That's certainly true, isn't it? God's mission begins right where we are and we have the opportunity to participate in it. Let me challenge you. I know challenges normally come at the end of the lesson but I think that you know what your mission is. Let me challenge you this week. Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. Uh, it's not rocket science. Do you know why you're a Christian? If you do, tell somebody else. Tell them that. Is it, you don't have to be able to quote a bunch of Scripture, necessarily. I hope that you will. I mean, I hope you have the capacity to do that. I hope that you'll study the Bible so that you would be able to tell people how they can come to know more about God. But if you can't, if you can't tell somebody why you are a Christian we got a problem. And if you can, tell them why you are a Christian. Tell them. It's just that simple. Make it your goal this week. Think about who that person is. Maybe it's a member of your family who is not a Christian. Maybe it's a close personal friend. Maybe it's an acquaintance. Maybe it's the cashier down at the Piggly Wiggly. I don't care who it is find a way to develop, to begin to develop a spiritual relationship with that person for the sake of their spiritual well-being throughout eternity. I have a great fear. I don't have very many fears. I'm not saying I'm fearless. I'm just saying i got a pretty good life, all in all. But I have a fear. It's been one that's stayed with me for years. The fear is that I'm going to be standing before the judgment and suddenly, perhaps for the first time, in that moment, I'm not going to be concerned about whether I am going to go to heaven. But that I'm going to be standing beside somebody else and I'm going to look over there. And that person is going to look at me and say, you knew all of this? You knew this and you didn't say anything? And in my, my nightmare, I say, well, I was afraid it would create distance, that it would hurt your feelings or that it would offend you in some way. And I'm imagining how hollow my own words would sound to me in that moment. You knew? Penn Jillette of the illusionist team, Penn and Teller. Not the normal kind of person you would reference in a sermon. Uh, he is an atheist. If it's possible to be devout in atheism, he is. He told a story one time, I saw it on YouTube, where I get most of my information, uh, where he describes an encounter he had with a man who came up to give him a Bible after one of his performances. And Gillette was overwhelmed with that reality. And he talks about it in this, in this interview, and he said, you know, I... Uh, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer. I'm an atheist, and I'm perfectly happy with that, he said, but this guy got to me. He said, I want, I want you to have this. It means a lot to me, and, and I wish you would think about being a believer, and Penn Gillette reflected on that, and he said, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer, he said, but got me to thinking about it this guy impressed me because he was so convicted and it it caused me to think he said how if you know if I'm if I'm standing by the side of a street and I see that you're in that street and I see a bus is coming towards you and I'm I'm watching this unfold and you're not moving he said there's a certain point at which I tackle you for your own well-being for your own good and then he asked this haunting question. He said, How much, if you believe there is a God, and that how you respond to Him matters, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about that? I, I want us to think about this mission in a very personal way ask yourself who are the people in your life that you love enough to think about their spiritual well-being over your discomfort John mentioned this morning that door-knocking for example if you choose to participate in that this afternoon can be an uncomfortable experience if you're not accustomed to it but if the love of Christ constrains us as Paul said it did him then love overwhelms fear, does it not? Those awkward conversations now seem like the most obvious and appropriate thing to have. I want to challenge you this week. Make that personal. Find one person and open up a spiritual dialogue. Find yourself whatever gateway that you can ask how are you and mean it physically okay you're fine how are you spiritually just ask the question see what comes of it start the conversation see that's what jesus did because jesus had a heart for the lost in our bible class and here this morning we talked about the god who sends And we establish that it is part and parcel of his nature to do that. He is a person who cares enough to try to remedy situations that are wrong, to make right. That's what God's justice is really about. It's about him making right what has been wrong. And we see that throughout the ages. God's concern for the world only recently manifested itself in the coming of Christ. Now make no mistake, I'm not marginalizing that in any way. Jesus is the hinge of history. Everything that happened before pointed to that moment, and everything that's happened since points back to that moment. But the earth stood and God showed his concern for the world for centuries before Jesus came. We see it in what we refer to as the patriarchal age or the patriarchal dispensation. God taking a look at what's going around and saying there's some things that are wrong here in Genesis chapter 6. Passage which for many of us doesn't exactly exude grace. I mean, after all, God comes down, everybody but eight in the world die. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But I want you to understand, Peter refers to this in 1 Peter chapter 3 as a cleansing experience, as a salvation experience, because were it not for God's overwhelmingly destructive act on that moment. Noah and his family might also have been destroyed, the only righteous people on the planet. God cleansed the world of its evil for the sake of saving those eight souls. That's how important this is to God. As we go on, we see Abram called to be God's man and to start in motion a process which ultimately leads to the coming of Christ. The conditioning of a people to be God's people to see Him at work. As we move into the Mosaical Age, we see that people at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, get a law which invites them to join and be in relationship with God. And much of the rest of what we call now the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is about the story of God's relationship with that group of people. But make no mistake, this is not the only people that God loved. As a matter of fact, He intended to use them to reach out to the rest of the world, to show the rest of the world what it looks like to be in relationship with God. We see other occasions where God makes that more explicit. For example, in Jonah chapter 1, which we talked about this morning in our Bible class, God sends Jonah to Assyria, to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, because he cares about those people. God always cares and it prompts him to action. Then, of course, we come to what we refer to as the Christian age where here we see the universalized invitation of God to the world. Come and meet me together in relationship. I want to show you my love. The scope of the book of Acts is universal. You think about Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 as Luke basically gives us a sort of a table of contents for the book. He says to these disciples, you go, you wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. And then, as an outgrowth of all that, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and into the ends of the earth, making explicit what has always been there, and that is that God cares about everybody that's in the world. This is what Jesus' heart sets in motion. So I want us to think a little bit about Jesus's heart today, and obviously what we want to do is to ask if our heart is aligned. With the heart of Christ, do we care about what He cares about? Do we care about them as He cares about them? Do we care about them enough as He did to do what He did? The first thing I want us to think about is the heart of Jesus as a servant. Service is—we have a love-hate relationship with service. We admire it. We see other people who do it. We appreciate that so much—the various kinds of service that they render. We. We look up to people who are selfless and whose hearts are inclined to put others ahead of themselves. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. What does service look like as lived out in the life of Jesus? Well, in Isaiah chapter 53, we're reminded this was always God's intention for this Messiah. Now, the Jews had not, had not often realized this. Their sense of the Messiah would be, here's a king who's going to come through and he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel back to their former glory as they were under the days of Saul, David, and Solomon before the kingdom became so fragmented and before they were uh, brought into captivity and slavery from some of the dominant nations around them. That's what they were thinking about. But if they had read the scriptures, as a matter of fact, Jesus calls attention to the fact that they err because they do not know the scriptures of the power of God. If they had read the Scriptures, they would have seen Jesus, the the Messiah, described as the suffering servant. Uh, When asked about His own ministry, Jesus says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's a service position. Going in and finding things that are wrong and expending oneself for the making of those things right. Jesus In John chapter 13, demonstrates his servant in an undeniable way. Can you imagine there are going to be moments in the ministry of Jesus that the disciples are going to look back on and not be able to get out of their head? Surely this is one of them. Watching your master kneel down with a towel wrapped around his waist and start working his way from one to another of those dirty feet. Quietly. The awkwardness, but you could cut it with a knife. And then to rise afterward and say, what I have done for you, you ought to be doing for each other. You can't forget that kind of imagery. So vivid, so powerful, so undeniably humble. Jesus was a servant. Christians should have hearts of service. We see the way this story turns out. Service is elevated in the Christian community. It's something that we ought to aspire to. Christians should have hearts of service. We will not reach out when we're thinking about ourselves. I'm fine. The best definition of evangelism I've ever heard is that evangelism is one hungry person, one beggar, telling another where to find bread. That requires us to look beyond our immediate situation and to care enough to serve others. Jesus exemplified and modeled this for us. Jesus is a giver. As a matter of fact, John chapter 3 and verse 16 shows us the impetus for that, perhaps the best known verse in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world that He gave that he gave. Jesus, as a member of the Godhead, drinking deeply from the divine essence, has this in his DNA. He's a giver. He gave not only at the end of his ministry, but during his ministry. These passages of Scripture that I'm putting up here on the screen right now, are well known to you. Jesus goes throughout all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 14, 14. When He went ashore, He saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them, healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32. Jesus called His disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with you now these three days and have had nothing to eat, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Matthew 20, verse 34. There were two blind men sitting by the roadside and when they heard that Jesus was passing by they cried out Lord have mercy on us son of David. Matthew goes on to record Jesus in pity touching their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. Mark 131 a leper comes Jesus is moved with pity and stretches out his hand touches him and said be clean. Luke 7:13 as he comes to the gate of the city behold a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother she was a widow Jesus saw her, had compassion on her. He raised that young man from the dead. Jesus is looking for opportunities to give. And He has things available to Him that only He has. As a matter of fact, one of the great impetuses for giving has always been, I have something. I have it and this other person doesn't have it. There is nothing that fits in that category that is more important than the gospel. Would you be willing to give it? Christians should have a compassionate heart. Jesus is a counselor. When we think about counseling today, we tend to think about you know, you go to somebody's office, they listen quietly, you know, got the open posture there. Maybe you're, is this thing still working? Yeah. Maybe uh, you are listening to the concerns of another person, you, hmm, hmm. But counsel involves not only listening, but caring and responding Jesus is the wonderful counselor Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 characterizes him in that way John chapter 8 Jesus finds this woman this woman is brought to him has been caught in the very act of adultery he listens carefully he is compassionate not judgmental at the end he does say and don't miss this go and stop sinning stop it but he had compassion on her where compassion was sorely lacking in that moment. The story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19 is well known to us. Jesus takes somebody who was a mess, whose life was in shambles, spiritually speaking, who was despised by his own community, and Jesus connected with him and met his needs. In John chapter 3, <coughs> excuse me, Nicodemus comes to him. Now here's a guy who's got everything. I mean, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, quite likely, ruler among the Jews. The text says, Jesus listens to him, acknowledges his confusion. I want to be a part of the kingdom, Nicodemus says. Jesus says, Okay, well, if you're born again, you can. Nicodemus, poor thing, bless his heart. We say where I come from, bless his heart. He's confused. He thinks he's gonna. Have, he said, That's gonna kill my mama. Jesus says, No, it's the spiritual rebirth that you need to undergo. That same man, by the way, some years later, is among the only two disciples who would own up to Jesus. Reckon why he did that. He'd seen Jesus respond to him when Jesus had every reason to put him in the category by well and boy talk about a mess her life is a mess and does not shy from her he listens that needs people like that in it. The world needs us. Pathetic hearts. I'm not sure what to do with this exactly. I've I've always been at church. I was, they say, raised in the church. That's more literally true of me than it is most. I do not, I'm pretty sure that before seven days had passed, I was in church. You know, now parents are frequently told you might want to keep your kids at home a little. system My parents had not heard about it, the immune system. Uh, they just drug me to church. I was in church every. I joke sometimes. My parents only decided to go to church one time. It's just, they went every time, but they only decided once. Uh, so we were in church. My mom was the church secretary. I mean, I I've lived. I grew up in the church building. thing. Certainly I'm not uh, trying to act like that's a bad thing. It's a very good thing. But do you remember? Do you remember? This is important. I remember. Even though I... If, if I don't know what it's like to be lost, if I forget that, I will have a difficult time empathizing with the vast majority of the people that I rub shoulders with each day. We need that. Jesus exemplified that. He understood what was at stake Guys, you may have to advance my slides here too. Everything's falling apart. (laughs) Starting with me. Jesus was a teacher. Now, Some of you in here are teachers. You understand the dynamic of that situation. What it's like to be in front of people perhaps, sharing with them important ideas. Others of you, that's a long way away from the world that you're at. You don't do that kind of thing. But most of us recognize the value of those who have led us to come to know things and who have shared with us things that we needed to know, and our lives have been shaped by those kinds of relationships. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has concluded the Sermon on the Mount, and the crowds, the Bible says, were astonished at his teaching, for he was one teaching them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. Matthew 13, 54, he comes to his hometown, he teaches in their synagogue, and they're astonished. That word shows up quite often, doesn't it? And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They're especially surprised because they grew up with this kid. They knew he was the carpenter's son, and yet what Jesus is sharing is life-changing. In Matthew 22 and verse 33, Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. John 7, 46, officers from among the Jews were sent to take Jesus into custody. They came back without him. What happened, they ask. He says, the officers answered, nobody ever spoke like this man. Now, Jesus, as far as we know, did not have a master's degree in education. He may not have had formal training on teaching, but what he did have was a compelling and powerful message that he could share in a personal and thoughtful way. Jesus was a teacher. Now, for those of us in this room who do not have master's degrees in English, the question remains... What have you got to share, and are you willing to share it? Jesus was, and it changed everything for the people whom He touched. But I want us to think about the ultimate expression of Jesus in his heart, and that is Jesus as sacrifice. In John chapter one, verse 36. John the Baptist, who has spent his life preparing the world for Jesus' coming. Takes a look, sees Jesus coming, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. This is imagery that would have been very powerful for his audience. Maybe less so for us, although we have a certain religious connection to that imagery. But John's talking to Jews, for whom sacrifice was a regular part of their religious life. And they had conditioned themselves to think about that as you take an animal, and there's a description of that animal to be spotless and whole, the best that you've got, and you offer that to God, and you identify with that animal, recognizing that, it costs, that sin is costly. And you offer that to God. They got that. And to have John say, there's the lamb right there. Must have been strange to them. At the same time, there was no mistaking the powerful reality to which John was alluding. Lambs don't live when they have been given for sin they die that's what happens and because of that we can understand what cost Jesus to do what he did for us Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 describes the cost for Jesus it took him all the way to the cross but that's not where his sacrifice began quite the contrary You know, have you ever thought about the story of the raising of Lazarus? Lazarus has died. Jesus has intentionally waited till he died to go and meet them there. He has in mind to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he goes to the tomb, and people are saying, this is going to sound a little bit indiscreet, but he stinks because he's been in there so long at this point. His body has become the process of decay. Jesus speaks to Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks out. (laughs) I don't mean to make fun of this, but I'm picturing the first words of Lazarus when he comes out of the tomb. Here's what I think they were. You couldn't have left me there. I was in Abraham's bosom. I was enjoying all the blood. You brought me back to this That'd be a sacrifice, wouldn't it? Jesus had, had undergone that sacrifice already, hadn't he? The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that the word that we already know is Jesus from verses 1 through 3. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. He experienced life here. How do you think this? You know, we spend all of our lives trying to get there. And Jesus was there and expended his life to get here. That's a sacrifice. Every time somebody verbally or then later physically abused him, Jesus made a sacrifice. Christians need sacrificial hearts. We need to be ready to live that kind of lifestyle. You see, the, the way that we approach life ought to be an extension of the example that Jesus left for us. He has given for us. He has, in every area of life, left deep footprints in which we walk. And they are a part of his heart. Jesus' heart for the lost gets lived out in the lives of his people. doesn't it? Jesus loves you. Brother Lloyd Mitchell served as for many years, 30 plus years, as a missionary in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe in Africa. Um, he was well known to say um, certain phrases over and over again you would meet him he, you'd say how are you he'd say all the better for meeting you but one of the phrases he's best known for is just as you would get ready to part ways he would say wait wait, wait. don't forget God loves you boy he does God loves you and Jesus' heart was poured out for you do you are you experiencing that love does that does that function in a powerful way in your life? Do you feel that? You know what it feels like to be loved. Isn't that a remarkable and wonderful feeling? Young people, when you're, when you're looking around trying to find somebody, somebody, what you're looking for is somebody to love you because we crave it. Can I suggest that there is a world full of people out there who wants somebody to love them. And that somebody does. And that somebody is Jesus. And we need to tell them. So many people in this world are heartbroken because they have never experienced that kind of love. They don't even know what they don't know. But we do. Share that. But here as we conclude this lesson, there's perhaps even a more immediate question that we need to be asking. Am I experiencing the love that flows out of Jesus' heart? If you are not, that's bad.